Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox censoring the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing today, sir? Well, I'm here. I've been studying the scriptures a lot and just surviving. Surviving is good. Like, that's what we got to do during yes. this time in particular. Hey, Derek, did you know that this is our 52nd episode? Wow. We should have like a year celebration anniversary thing. Yeah, bro. We've been doing this for a year. That's a bit wild, isn't it? It is. We've been doing this for a year and you still haven't gotten rid of me yet. <laughs> no, man. Anyway, then before we begin, just wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. I just thought of something, Derek. Yeah. So uh, we just did Sunday school f- through Dialogue uh, this past Sunday. And uh, if you guys weren't unable to see it, we did both Dialogue and our Facebook page posted a recording of that Zoom Sunday school meeting that Derek and I had the opportunity to host. We did teach a lesson on Mosiah 1 through 3 in that particular class. Derek, true to his <laughs> principles of theological scholarship, brought some new stuff to the conversation. And uh, in my opinion, it was uh, it went pretty well. So uh, if you want to check that out, it's on our Facebook page, also on Dialogue's Facebook page. And you can see a replay of that Sunday school lesson that we had. So tune into that. They, they said it was like the busiest chat of the Sunday school classes so far. People had a lot of things to say during the course of our lesson, which is always good. Like, I like when people are engaged in the dialogue. Yeah, well, should we jump into the text now? I guess. Let's jump into this text here. So, Derek, is there any kind of historical context or theological context you want to lay on us before we jump into the content? Yeah, I just want to talk a little bit about Mormon's editorial practices. So, from now until uh, basically the book of Moroni, all of these texts are edited, abridged, and sort of arranged by Mormon. So you've got Mormon using sources from centuries before who's arranging them in a particular way, and he has a particular sort of agenda in mind, an outcome. He really wants to persuade people. He wants to use historical evidence to show how God moves through things. He really wants to reason with people, which is very different from Moroni's approach, where Moroni basically despairs of the evidence and says, look, you just got to ask, you just got to ask yourself and God will tell you because, you know, but but here Mormon loves to put some embedded documents. And I think here the account of Zenith, we get Zenith's own account here. And another example of a good embedded document is, uh, of course, King Benjamin's sermon. Yeah. And I think Mormon does this in order to increase the persuasive value of what he's doing because then you get this direct, immediate encounter with what happened a long time ago. And I think it's very vivid. Um, and this happens in the Bible too. You, like Ezra and Nehemiah mentions and contains memoirs, letters, royal decrees, and archival materials that have been sort of assembled together into a hybrid narrative. And then the same thing with the book of Acts. You've got a blend of first first person and third person narratives, speeches, dialogues, and a few letters. And I think one key thing that we get, we get a window into Mormon's thought in his letter to his son Moroni that we don't get in his editorial style. And here's what he says in the letter that's recorded to his son in Moroni 9 verse 25. 
My son, be faithful in Christ, and may not the things which I have written grieve thee, to weigh thee down unto death, but may Christ lift thee up, and may his sufferings and death, and the showing of his body unto our fathers, and his mercy and long suffering, and the hope of his glory and of mm -hmm. eternal life rest in your mind forever. And so we should keep this in mind when, when uh, the majority of the arc of the n narrative in the Book of Mormon is a tragedy. We get some, some really difficult and painful things in this lesson, this week's lesson. But I think keeping the death and resurrection of Christ in mind as the fulcrum of history really can help us focus what Mormon wants to get out of this. And I yeah. think when, when we read both the Book of Mormon and the Bible, we're shaped by this vision and we're formed by, by Christian love and hope. And I think the risen Christ really means that a new chapter has begun. I like the, that we're in Easter time right now. And I think keeping the risen Christ in the background when we read all of these tough things can really um, to he to help us. And, and when we've got the Book of Mormon, um, we have in our hands the means to say no to despair and to say yes to Jesus mm -hmm. and the hope that he provides to the Im humans who bear his image. That's beautiful, man. And so that's kind of where I where we want to go to frame what what uh, Mormon's doing here when he edits, abridges, and arranges the text of Mosiah. Curious. All right. Cool. Let me then just jump into Mosiah chapter seven. I want to talk a little bit about the um, the case where Ammon speaks with boldness. And now this isn't the same Ammon that disarmed his enemies that we get yeah. later. Uh, one, one important thing about this part of Mosiah is for people to keep in mind the chronology and the geography because we've got several flashbacks, we've got several shifts of scene, and keeping all of that organized is really key to understand where things are going. But here you've got several generations later, Ammon speaking with boldness when he goes to figure out what's, what happened to all the people from their land who had left and we don't know where they went and we get that flashback later and so in chapter 7 we've got Ammon coming up to and being detained by and arrested by the people of Limhi's community and this is this colony of Nephites in Lamanite territory and he says and now um, in verse 12 and 13 of chapter 7 O king, I am very thankful before God this day that I am yet alive and am permitted to speak, and I will endeavor to speak with boldness. For I am assured that if ye had known me, ye would not have suffered that I should have worn these bands. And then he, he, uh, lead, he basically summarizes his point with his identity. He says, For I am Ammon, and I am a descendant of Zarahemla, and have come up out of the land of Zarahemla to inquire concerning our brethren, whom Zenith brought up out of that land. So he really focuses mm. on what he knows and tells his own personal story, and that actually kind of saves his life. And it's not, a, and it's not just what he knows, but it's almost like, I mean, it's basically where he and Limhi are connected. Like, I, that, that preceding sentence there is very interesting. He's like, if you'd known who I was, you wouldn't have done this to me. And then he proceeds to share his identity, which is basically something that ought to have some kind of significance to Limhi. This isn't just his identity he's sharing. He's sharing a piece of himself right. that would have some sort of significance to Limhi. Yeah, and I think uh, the LGBTQ community could say something very similar. Like, if people actually knew us and knew who we were, they wouldn't have yeah. done to us what they're doing. Yes, and, yes. Um, 
this really reminds me of this account in First Kings chapter 22. There's this really courageous dude named Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And let me just real quick summarize this story because he also has the opportunity to speak boldly before a king. And it, it's the king Ahab. Okay. And so Ahab is king of Israel and Jehoshaphat is king of Judah. And the two of them are conspiring together to take back a town called Ramoth Gilead from the Syrians. And, and they were disputing among themselves whether they should go to war. So they decided to get all of their uh, the institutional prophets together. And they had 400 prophets. And they asked for an oracle saying, well, if we go to war, are we going to win? And the prophets, the 400 prophets, unanimously said, yes, God is on your side and you will win the battle if you if you take it. And then Ahab, king of Israel, he's like, well, there is this one guy that I don't really like because he always tells me stuff that I don't like hearing. We should go ask him. And that guy is Micaiah. And so what happens is they, King Ahab asks Micaiah, should we go to battle or not? Like, are we going to win? And then Micaiah says, which I think is pretty sarcastic, he says, yeah, sure. If you go to battle, you're going to win. And then Ahab says, no, just tell me the truth. Like, what, 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 what's really going to happen? And then Micaiah says, um, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep without a shepherd. Which basically is saying, like, if you go to war, the king, you're going to die, you know, and your people are going to be scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Mm. If you know anything about the biblical narratives, you know exactly where this is going to go. The Ah King Ahab is going to go to war anyway, and he's going to lose. Jeez. That's what happens. There's a couple of lessons here. The first one is that Micaiah is an example of someone who stood humbly before— Oh, I forgot. This isn't—I didn't even get to this. He goes on to talk about a vision that he had where he got to see God's throne room and had this really mystical, almost first vision-type experience where he got to see the Lord in his own courts and— and that fundamentally changed who he was. And so this is an example of someone who stood humbly before God in order that he might stand boldly before humans. And so he was able mm. to stand up to the king knowing who he was and what he saw and what he knew. And that leads to this second point is that someone who dissents in order to speak the truth is worth more than 400 institutional prophets. Hmm. And I think this is just a great example of the boldness and courage that can come from knowing who you are, knowing your identity, knowing your connection with God, and then being right. And I think the, the narrative shows this. But that, that's too long of a digression, but I just love this story, <laughs> and a lot of people probably don't know it. So check it out in First Kings 22, and it will really help you understand the nature of, of prophets and dissent. I, I feel like the future of this church is going to be framed, or sorry, not framed, but it's going to be shaped by such individuals, people who dare to say something different. And that is, and just that breaking up of that kind of solidarity is going to create room for a constructive dialogue that will hopefully and likely shape the future of this church and how it deals with its people. Yeah, and I think that's uh, something that we learned from this account here and also the, the Zenith's own first-person narrative is that the record of the struggles in this generation will be the scriptures of the next generation. Like, who knows the stories that we tell, we today in 2020, like our stories about uh, people of color, about women, about LGBTs, um, 
our struggles here and, and the stories that we tell, we will be characters in the scriptures that the next generation will read. And we should never forget that. I was actually, as you said that, I was thinking of that, uh, this incident from our trip to D.C. this past February. Remember when we went to church and they did that combined second, uh, second hour thing? Yeah. And you stood up and you said something about how the church needed to accept LGBTQs. And I don't, I don't remember who was teaching. Was that, was that their stake president? Uh, it was some important person. I don't know. Some important person. Yeah. But what I, what I remember about that is how many people in that congregation came to you afterward. Right. You, in essence, said what other people in that congregation wanted to say. You disrupted whatever taboo was in place in that ward so that other people felt almost emboldened or they felt relieved by your presence there and your willingness to speak that truth there. Now people are going to be more apt to speak their truths in that ward now that they know that somebody like them had the courage to say what you said. Yeah, and I don't remember exactly what I said. I think it was talking about it was about temple work and I and I used that as a way of talking about, well, is there really a place for LGBTs to be fully included in the temple? And um I think I did it in a way that was very accessible and non-threatening, but also said what I needed to say. Is there anything else you want to say about those uh, two verses, 12 and 13? No, um that's it. I I think I just wanted to then kind of go on to what happens in Mosiah 7. And I just really had one one point about verses 19 through, well, really 18 through 20. Okay. And so here you've got Limhi talking to his people, and he gathers them and gives them basically a pep talk saying, lift up your heads and be comforted. Um, there will become a time where we will be no longer in subjection to our enemies. and um, And I love this line notwithstanding our many strugglings which have been in vain yet i trust there remaineth an effectual struggle to be made so like no matter how far you've gone there still be there still may need to be room for an effectual struggle that remains mm -hmm. and then he says put your trust in god and then recounts and remembers and retells all of these wonderful things from the redemptive history found in the scriptures. You've got the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who led ch the children of Israel out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and fed them with manna. And look at all these times where God chose sides. Like a lot of people don't like this idea. And I and there's part of me that's uncomfortable with the idea of God choosing sides because all are alike unto God. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of like... Black Lives Matter. You can't just say all lives matter when there's a something that needs to be said. And I think that's the sense in which God takes sides is not because God is uh, has partiality, but when God needs to take the side of someone in order that there might be equality, then God does. Mm -hmm. And then in verse 20, there's something very interesting. It says that same God has brought our fathers out of the land of Jerusalem and has kept and preserved his people even until now. And behold, it is because of our iniquities and abominations that he has brought us into bondage. And it's very interesting because there's a text critical situation here. We've got a really curious reading because if you look at the printer's manuscript in the 1830 edition, these are our earliest sources. There's no word he in the final clause. It reads, it is because of our iniquities and abominations that has brought us into bondage. So it completely changes the the sense because it, 
now the text reads that well god is the one who brought us into bondage um but that reading is not pr- the first time that was ever found in any book of mormon was in the um 1905 edition so they amended the text in 1905 to make more sense out of it but the original reading and this is um you know from Skousen's uh, earliest text of the Book of Mormon, his text critical project, and he basically concludes that the original must have been what it says in the printer's manuscript in the 1830. It is because of our iniquities and abominations that has brought us into bondage, and I like yeah. that. And I think we we get into a little bit of a tough time when we want to. Um, now, everyone has the right to make meaning out of their struggles, especially if it's your own struggles. What I just don't want to hear is people making meaning out of someone else's struggles in a way that really uh, dis- detracts from their own well-being and their own sense of things. That's kind of all I wanted to say here is that, that these scriptures that Limhi is appealing to are not about information, but it's about transformation. I think that's really the whole point of talking about Mormon's editorial practices is he wants people to believe certain things and act a certain way. Mm-hmm. And he is carefully constructing his historical narrative with those goals in right, mind. Right. And that's why I think the Book of Mormon is so powerful as a as a tool of repentance and bringing people to faith. Mm. All right, great. Then I'm going to uh, continue on going on from... Uh 18 through 20, and I do want to kind of explore a little bit more of that theme that you spoke of uh, with regard to people bringing upon themselves their own afflictions rather than God bringing upon them their own afflictions. I wanted to talk specifically about verses, uh, I guess this is going to be 23 through about 29 or so. And uh, there's two things that jumped out to me here. I'll probably spend more time on the second thing because I still haven't made total sense of the first thing. But anyway, this is what's happening. You already talked about what's happening at this point in the story. Limhi is speaking to his people. Ammon uh, was welcomed by Limhi. And uh, Limhi basically determines that Ammon is going to help get them out of bondage to the Lamanites. Limhi, in these verses, he is mourning their situation as it probably would have been avoided had his people repented. Now, what we don't know yet at this point in the narrative is that a prophet named Abinadi had preached to Limhi's people when his father was king. And he testified of their iniquities and that unless they repent, they would end up in bondage to the Lamanites, kind of like Micaiah said of uh, Ahab. Uh, in these verses, though, I'd like to discuss Limhi acknowledges the iniquities of his people and that this is the cause of their bondage. A couple of interesting things occur in these verses, and um, like I said, this first one may not be worth all that fuss, but at least it's worth considering. So uh, this is verse 23. And now, is not this grievous to be born? Limhi just got done talking about their trials and what they're being afflicted with, and he's continuing. And then he continues. And is not this our affliction great? Now behold how great reason we have to mourn. As I read verse 24, continue listening and uh, notice the point of view from which Limhi is speaking. Yea, I say unto you, great are the reasons which we have to mourn. For behold, how many of our brethren have been slain and their blood has been spilt in vain and all because of iniquity. Now notice the shift in point of view when Limhi starts talking about people's sins. 
For if this people had not fallen into transgression, the Lord would not have suffered that this great evil should come upon them. But behold, they would not hearken unto his words, but there arose contentions among them, even so much that they did shed blood among themselves. And a prophet, this is Abinadi, and a prophet of the Lord have they slain. Yea, a chosen man of God who told them of their wickedness and abominations and prophesied of many things which are to come, even the coming of Christ. And because he said unto them that Christ was God, the Father of all things, etc., etc., verse 28, because he had said this, they did put him to death, and many more things did they do, which brought down the wrath of God upon them. Therefore, who wondereth that they are in bondage, and that they are smitten with sore afflictions? What is happening here exactly? Like, why is Limhi associating, like, what I noticed in 23 and 24, Limhi was associating himself with their hardship, but not with the iniquity that brought the hardship upon his people. Like, why can he own the hardship, but not its cause? Well, what I read initially was that Limhi demonstrated something that I wish we could see with members of privileged classes. He is able to dissociate himself from blame for what is happening to his people, but he also kind of accepts the responsibility and the reality of what's happening to him. Like there's a difference between blame and responsibility that Limhi seems to be acknowledging here. Like even though he's not to blame for the situation that he's in, he does seem to be taking responsibility for it because he is in it and he does have to deal with it. Um, but I feel like there may be something else in there worth considering. Do you, do you hear anything that's worth exploring, Derek? I haven't studied this extensively, but when you when I heard it and I'm reading it again, my first instinct is that the the shift to the third person they has to do with um, the passage of time and that these things happened before Limhi got on the scene. Some of these iniquities may have ha happened back in the time of Zenith of of actually just going there to begin with, and then some of it obviously happened during the time of King Noah, uh, Limhi's father. I th that's my sense of where this is going, but it is important to to talk about where um, where where it's connected because he's basically saying we now s are suffering these things. Um, but that's very interesting because verse twenty eight says, "Therefore, who wondereth that they are in bondage and that they are yes, that they that was gonna yeah that's what I was about to bring up." He says they are in bondage there because of their iniquities and all that stuff. So I'm just like, what's going on here, like? I, I could have vibed with what with what you were saying earlier if uh if Limhi was at least consistent with who he was talking about and the chronology of things, but he doesn't drop that third person narrative when he starts talking about the relative present day where his people are still in bondage and he's still addressing them as they instead of we or us. Like I don't know what's I don't know what's happening there, but yeah, like I, I don't said, know what's I don't happening have any, there either. Okay. Well, it's worth considering probably. I'll probably I'm probably going to call Rev Dr. Fatima after this and be like, "What's going on here?" Like, <laughs> yeah. I I don't know anything, but anyway, that that was the first thing I noticed. But the second thing I really want to explore is what happens in verse 29. And that is the Okay, this is what it says. For behold, the Lord hath said, I will not succor my people in the day of their transgression, but I will hedge up their ways that they prosper not, and their doings shall be as a stumbling block before them. And I just thought that was really profound. The first thing I actually thought of when I read this verse, like a picture came up in my mind that's been circulating online of all those people outside their state houses protesting government mm -hmm. orders to close businesses and stay indoors because they care more about 
capitalism than uh, public safety. I believe you were calling them the uh, Flu Klux Klan. Yeah, the uh, flu. <laughs> that, that's not my, like someone else <laughs> came up with that and I saw it. I can't remember now who it was, but I thought, okay, that is very interesting. The Flu Klux Klan. Oh, that's funny, though. The Flu Klux Klan. That's funny, though. <laughs> but I think there is, a, anyway. there is a thing where kind of like what, what Limhi is saying is like these circumstances reveal our priorities. Yes. And I think yes. um, he turns to, you know, the salvation history of how God has delivered people. And then he turns to like the afflictions that they have and the connection to their sin. And, and all these afflictions bring out people's values and priorities. And I think the coronavirus mm-hmm. will bring out the best in people and it will bring out the worst in people. And, and yes. we're seeing that right now. Yes. Like what I'm seeing right now was that we are literally placing a stumbling block before ourselves that will impact our physical health, our economic health, and, you know, probably our mental health too. Like what these protesters are doing is creating more of a public health crisis. And I feel this is a good time to remind folks that Jesus ain't going to protect us if you're not listening to the prophet, the scientists, and the government officials, all of whom are telling us to stay inside. Jesus is not an insurance policy. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, a long time ago, I, I remember one of the most profound lessons I learned from reading Jesus the Christ by James E. Talmadge was his analysis of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And he used this story to talk about the use of divine power. When, when he was talking about it, he said something like, uh, Christ never used the superhuman powers of his godship unnecessarily. All that human agency could do was left to humans. Jesus, who knew that Lazarus was dead without even receiving that information through any traditional means, still asked, where have ye laid him? And then when he, like when he arrived on the scene, he still asked. And Jesus, who could still the waves of the sea with a single word, could surely have removed the stone that sealed Lazarus's tomb. But he still said, take ye away the stone. And Jesus, who could restore people to life, surely could have loosed the wraps by which Lazarus was still bound once he came forth. Yet he commanded those with him to loose him and let him go. So what I'm gathering from this is that divine power is not wasted on that which human agency can do. So if you like, mm-hmm. if you have power to stay indoors to stop the spread of this pandemic, but you go out anyway, Jesus is leaving you alone. Nation Christ is not on your side. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Whatever your insurance policy is, Jesus ain't it. Jesus ain't helping nobody who is refusing to help themselves. Like, look at what our leaders of the church are doing. They are seismically retrofitting the temple in case there's more earthquakes. Like, that should tell us everything we need to know about how our leadership wants us to treat this situation. We do everything we can, and then the Lord will do that which we cannot. You know what I'm saying? Right. And this is extendable to all kinds of other things, not just the coronavirus. We can apply this to institutional problems we deal with like racism and poverty those are monsters of our own making that happen to be magnified by the coronavirus and we can't expect god to help us with those on an institutional level while we haven't even prioritized their eradication on those same levels it uh it reminds me a little bit about the sort of 
theology and the framework that people had around this worldwide fast that we had. And to me, fasting is a posture, not a transaction. Okay? Say that fasting again. Is a po- fasting is a posture, not a transaction. So a lot of people think that God is just like this hired whatever vending machine that we just pop the right things in and out comes the, you know, what we want. And that's not how it works. Like you said, we've got to do what we need to do. And I think fasting puts us in a posture where we remember all of these things. We remember the priorities and then we act on them. And I think that that's really sort of the first step in all this. And mm. talking about the protesters remind me reminded me of, of these protesters in Acts chapter 19. So here's what Paul did. So Paul was preaching Jesus and he was speaking the truth into this power. And guess what happened? There was an economic devastation in the city of Ephesus because what happened is oh, all shoot. the silversmiths lost all their business because Paul was preaching against idolatry and then like, oh no, like you completely crashed the economy of Ephesus because of your preaching. So they, you know, they were mean to him. They ran him out of town. They they beat him up. They just, um, yeah, that's what happened to Paul because he was willing to take the truth as more important than economic uh, stability of, a, mm. a, you know. And part of it, it gets back to idolatry because what they were doing is making these idols. And they were basically saying uh, having Artemis served is more important than than listening to what Paul had to say. And I'm like, that's kind of relevant to our, our time when people are not mm-hmm. listening to prophets and apostles and taking the economy as somehow their own god and the most important thing. You know, and, and not just— More important this than people's e- lives. Exactly. It's literally people are serving a God with human sacrifice. This is like some thing that was completely condemned oh, in the Bible. Oh, shoot. People are serving the idol of the American economy by means of human sacrifice. Ooh. Dang, Derek. And I love how it ends here in verse 33. Limai says, but if you will turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart and put your trust in him and serve him with all diligence of mind. If you do this, he will, according to his own will and pleasure, deliver you out of bondage. So there is this sense of, it's not a vending machine situation, but there is a sense in which if you cooperate with God, it taps Mm. you into what God is already willing to do for you. So it's about opting in rather than tricking God into doing what you want. Well, all right then, all right then. Uh, is it cool if we uh, move on to, I think we both had stuff we wanted to say about uh, Mosiah chapter 9. Yeah. Um, so in Mosiah 9 and 10, we've got Zenith's own first person narrative. I just wanted to say a little bit about the character because a lot of our characters in the Book of Mormon can, can tend to be a little bit flat. They're, you know, they're either a villain or they're a hero, a good guy. It's like Disney, right? You can tell just within two <laughs> seconds whether a character, which side they're on. Uh-huh. But here's one thing that I learned um, in, a, in undergrad. I had a class on Thucydides, the, the Greek historian, with uh, my professor, David Mulroy, and he... He told us that a well-rounded character is not one where the narrator decides for you who is good and who's a villain. That a well-written character is one where it's a little bit ambiguous and, and complex, and you as the reader, you're forced to decide on your own whether that character is good or bad. And the example that he gave was Hamlet. 
in Shakespeare's Hamlet because you have Dude. to wrestle <laughs> with Hamlet with you know because he did some cool stuff he also did some really awful stuff and like navigating all that it's not spoon fed to you how you should feel about Hamlet it, there's there's some complexity there and yeah. real see that's the thing is real people are complex ambiguous and nuanced and all of us um, I think this is something really clear in the social justice world like no one is a hundred percent woke on every issue like i'm gonna make mistakes mm -hmm. i've have made mistakes and i'm going to it's just a matter of of realizing that oh we're not all good or all bad and it's the same thing right. on the other side like there's uh but anyway so that's what i think is really cool about zenith he's really starting from the beginning you realize that there's some ambiguity about him like his whole choice mm -hmm. to go back to the land of Nephi, that land of their yeah. father's inheritance. Yeah. That's, you can see some good in that, but you can also see some bad in that because they were, um, definitely they were commanded to leave that land for their own safety. And now he's wanting to go right. back. There's like some pride and some entitlement that he's got to wrestle with there that, uh, that, you know, leads to him going back. And I think we discussed this a couple of weeks ago on the show uh, when we discussed Omni, but it's a very problematic thing when God has already more or less ordained that that is not for, that is not a blessing for me right now. This is a place that we got to leave. But then there's a group of people who are like, no, it is our it is ours. Like we have to go back like because that is ours. Like God promised that to us. Therefore, we should possess it. And that's what is more or less motivating Zenith to go back or sorry, Zenith to go back. Yeah, I've heard it pronounced both ways. Okay, then I'm not going to fuss about it. I, I, I don't know exactly, but. Well, I'm gonna check the pronunciation guide right now. <laughs> yeah. So here's um, one thing I've noticed though is how this this initial attempt leads to not just a civil war but an inter-family war because the principles were involved were the principles involved were so captivating and compelling that it even divided families that that people had th this ideology more important than their family on both sides. And mm -hmm. I think that really speaks to sort of the ambiguity of what he was doing and sort of the tragedy that he was uh, led into. Yeah, it is Zenith. I just checked for the pronunciation guide. But I have heard I have heard people say it both ways, so I don't know. The pronunciation guide says so. My whole life is a lie right now. I've been pronouncing it Zenith for all 32 years of my life. Shoot. But yeah, what do you think about this? That it that the just the idea, the controversy of whether they should go back led to um, violence within families, brother against brother, father against father. I do think that's kind of a fair thing to say. Um, that's that's not necessary. This is not what I pictured would be their punishment for having disobeyed the Lord, telling them to leave and go to Zarahemla or whatever. Like I didn't picture this being their curse or their punishment. But I do think it's fair to say that they brought this on themselves by one, trying to take back their old land that the Lord said was not for them to possess. And uh, also when their contention that basically stemmed over or stemmed from what the value of the Lamanites lives were was also a factor. And that's kind of what I wanted to uh, discuss. But the short answer to your question is yes. I think that's a fair statement to mm -hmm. make. But uh, anyway, what I what I wanted to focus on in chapter nine was these first two verses here. Zenith goes among the Lamanites as a spy to basically, uh, I guess, case the Lamanites that his people may be able to 
be properly equipped to fall upon them and destroy them. But Zenith sees the good in their people and doesn't want to destroy them. Uh, and instead of destroying them, he proposes that they make a that he makes a treaty with them. This was probably Zenith's first encounter with Lamanites, and he, like many of us, probably inherited generational prejudice from his ancestors toward the Lamanites. Mm-hmm. However, this prejudice it didn't match his experience among them, and that experience was so profound that he wanted to spare their lives, and not just that, um, he was willing to go to battle over it. This this matches the experience of many of us who have privilege. We really start to gain empathy for those we regard as the other when we are compelled in any way to spend time with them. Um, oh, Derek, do you remember that uh, Heineken ad from like a year or two ago, like a Worlds Apart ad? No, I, d- I don't. I might if okay, you refresh well, my memory. Yeah, I can do that. Um, so basically in this commercial two people with opposing ideologies spent their time together building a bar. Like they had to work together to build a bar. Oh yeah. Now, you remember this? now I remember this. I remember okay. this. Yeah. For the listeners though, I'll just explain the rest of the commercial briefly. Now, after they built the bar together, the producer would then play video interviews for them of each person in the pair that puts their ideology on full display. Like for example, the last, the last pair was a queer black woman uh, who was a feminist who identified herself as a feminist and some white dude who looks like the villain from Ant-Man basically saying all this miso- misogynistic stuff. So uh, but anyway, after that video is played, the producer then gives them the option to stick around for Heineken's to discuss their differences or leave. Now, I got all kinds of problems with this ad, but the one part of this commercial that I actually did like was how brilliantly it highlighted how difficult it is to hate somebody once you get to know them, particularly the parts of them that resonate with you. Like all, each of these pairs of people were forced to see the humanness in somebody else because they recognize that same humanness in themselves. And for many people in the church, a more profound moment is when a family member or a friend comes out as gay and then they realize how they feel about gay folks needs to change because they can't simultaneously view queer people as subhuman and love their queer friends or family members. Um, so, so yeah, I just found it very interesting that Zenith, sorry, Zenith, this is going to take some getting used to. Zenith found humanity in the Lamanites to the point where he was willing to contend with his brethren with his own people. Like that was the other interesting thing I wanted to uh, point out. Verse two, we learned that he contends with these people like his own, his own brethren. And the leader of Zenith's people is so put off by it that he wants to kill Zenith. And this results in what basically amounts to a civil war. Zenith could have let all of this go. He could have just dropped this whole thing. As soon as Ish was getting real, he could have been like, forget it. And then they just go and kill the Lamanites without any loss to his company or to his brethren. But he chose to stand up for the Lamanites. And that led to the destruction of half of his army, at least half of his army. And that's an incredible thing that Zenith was willing to contend with his own people in order to humanize the Lamanites, a group he's not even part of, a group that he was raised with uh, prejudiced against, a group that he has nothing really to gain by protecting. And I just had to wonder to myself, how many of us 
are willing to break solidarity with other members of our privileged class and contend with them in order to preserve the lives of people in an othered class. Yeah, that's a really good point, especially because um, on some levels, his choice to do that is morally ambiguous. Like that, Yes, that's what I was going to say next. Continue. It's tough. It, it's tough to know exactly what the right thing to do because I think there's ways that God later on used this because he used the colony there to to basically the, be the central focus of the Nephite church. That's where you get the Almas. That's where you get Abinadi. That's where you get um, the formation of the heart of the Nephite Christian church is through this this colony that is in the wrong place. And you know, so I think that that wouldn't have happened the way it did without this. So it's real complex. And the thing I wanted to, the last thing I wanted to notice there, there's no scripture quoted or any kind of divine instruction here that seems to be informing Zenith's reasoning for his defense of the Lamanites. All he states is that he saw some, uh, that he saw good in the Lamanites, and that was enough to want them to live. That was enough to fight against his brethren. None of this mess that Zenith put his people through was preceded by any kind of divine instruction, and that's... None that's written here, anyway. Yeah. And uh, all the author felt to state was that he saw some good in them. And I just thought that was a powerful thing, that such a critical and undoubtedly godly action that Zenith took was taken without citing God's name or any kind of appeal to divine authority or divine instruction. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think there's some, like, in Zenith's account, there's a lot of of literary irony here. It's the fact that he wanted to be a military spy that led him to having some compassion for the enemy because he yeah. got to know them. Um, he says that he was overzealous to inherit the land of our, which is a very interesting phrase because overzealous implies that there's like a right amount of zealous and he just went over <laughs> it. I think that later on when you look at, in, at the end of chapter 9, he says, so there, this, is, this is the first battle with the Lamanites, and that God did hear their prayers, and they, uh, they killed 3,043 of the Lamanites. And then um, he says in verse 19, And I myself, with mine own hands, did help to bury their dead. That is, the Lamanite dead. I think he had such compassion and agility that he was able to do that, right? And then I think there's some irony in the fir- in the beginning of chapter 10 where it says, and it came to pass that we began to establish the kingdom and we again began to possess the land in peace. And then the next sentence is, and I caused that there should be weapons of war made of every kind. I mean, that's kind of really weird to say, look, we've got peace, but now I need to make weapons of war. I mean, this is a really compelling and engaging narrative. And later in the seventh uh, verse of chapter 10, he said, but I had sent my spies out roundabout. And um, and I think that the irony there is that that's the behavior that he engaged in that started this whole thing. Mm. But what I really want to get to in, I, in Mosiah chapter 10 is this, this very interesting literary feature that happens right as the battle gets started. So Zenith uses a rhetorical strategy here that literary scholars call suspension. So he brings us to the edge of the battle in verse 10. He says, um, and we did go up in the strength of the Lord to battle. 
And then right here, right when we're most alert and most um, attentive to what's going on, he uses this time to say something important. And what is that important thing that he says? Basically, he's telling us what's going on from the perspective of the Lamanites, his enemies. Mm. So we don't get to the battle until really verse 20. So we've got 10 verses here where he talks about things building on his empathy for the Lamanites. And this is probably the only sustained text in the Book of Mormon where we get to hear the Lamanites' side. We don't really get um, that anywhere else. But here we've got in verse 12, um, it says, believing that they were, this is the Lamanites, believing that they were driven out of the land of Jerusalem because of the iniquities of their fathers, and that they were wronged in the wilderness by their brethren, and that they were wronged while crossing the sea, and again, that they were wronged while in the land of their first inheritance after they had crossed the sea. And all this because Nephi was more faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord. And I think this is so interesting because what if the Lamanites, obviously they felt they had a legitimate complaint because Nephi was sometimes a little bit arrogant, sometimes a jerk. He did some things like um, he, he took the plates when it really was community property. He uh, took the lead of the people when it should have been a, a more of a consensus-based or at least the elder. Like, There's just so many things that Nephi did that in some ways you could easily see the Lamanites as remembering this injustice and rehearsing it over generations and generations. Um, yeah, it's verse 16 where he took the records um, and, and they felt that the Lamanites felt that Nephi robbed them, right? This is so interesting that they had some legitimate uh, things here and which led the Lamanite king to want to have revenge and kept this grudge going. And I just find that so beautiful that using this sort of literary strategy, we have Mormon giving us Nephi's version of the Lamanites' uh, own perspective, and which we wouldn't have gotten that otherwise. And I think that's why Mormon has included these sources. And I, I just find that so brilliant that we have just a taste of what the Lamanites did and we don't even get the real battle and then we we get all this empathy and understanding and here's the biggest dramatic irony, irony of all is Zenith is saying this right before the battle and he's trying to build empathy with for the people that they're about to battle and I think mm -hmm. that is that's like wow and so we've got this digression that's inserted right before um, this action and then the action resumes in verse 20 and that's all we get it and it came to pass that we did drive them out again out of our land and we slew them with a great slaughter even so many that we did not number them that's all the battle that we get and what i love about this is that it tells us there are two sides to every story and in a world where it is so easy to see people as either completely good or completely bad all or nothing um we need to remember this and this lesson should have an impact on our act activism and advocacy because i see people just divided into parties so easily and i don't mean political parties i just mean little factions of self-reinforcing echo chambers and it's so easy to demonize the other when and that just makes the whole conversation harder and i think that's the real power of the example of jesus like i said the whole point of of all of this is to bring us back to jesus and jesus really did those bridge building activities of 
of really frustrating our assumptions and exposing all of those awful things that we believed about another group of people that are wrong. And I just find that is, is really the power of, of this narrative. Mm. Well then, I think, that's a, uh, I think that's a good note to end on as we are approaching time. Before we transition all the way out, just wanted to tell you guys about Gospel Tangents, which explores Mormon history, science, and theology from the best experts in the field. Talk to witnesses of history, BYU professors, apostles, and hopefully prophets, presidents from the many different restoration branches and non-believers to cover a 360-degree view of Mormonism. Find them wherever you get your podcasts or on dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Now, by way of business, Derek, where can people find us? You can find us on beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Still Facebook. Still not on Snapchat and TikTok. Yeah, we need to get on that. <laughs> I gotta we need to be out. relevant. I got to figure out what on earth we are going to do on freaking TikTok. I I still don't know how that app works. No idea. Do we have any announcements, anything coming up that we got to let the people be aware of? Well, at some point, we, we haven't scheduled this, but we may be teaching more online Sunday school classes. We'll We'll let you know about that. Keep following us on social media. It's been a pleasure, guys. We've been at this a year, so... Yeah, whole 52 episodes, and uh, we hope to bring y'all 52 more. Yeah. Thanks for joining us on this journey, especially y'all that been with us since the beginning. Till we meet again next week.